Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. Oregon is officially in a COVID lull, but our Portland emergency rooms are still struggling. So today on the show, Dr. Esther Chu, an ER doctor and associate professor at the Oregon Health and Science University, is giving us a check-in on how she and her crew are holding up, and why to them, we're still very much in an active pandemic. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is CityCast Portland. So Esther, you work the overnight shift at the OHSU emergency room, and we've heard that RSV, COVID, and flu cases have been declining. Uh, what do your shifts look like currently? They they definitely are in decline, especially RSV, which was really crushing us um, and our pediatric EDs for a while. I was just talking to a friend this morning about how it's hard to sort out what's causing the volume at our ED shifts. I mean, when we were in the middle of this huge respiratory viral surge around the holidays, I mean, it was very obvious that RSV was crushing us. You know, there was a ton of influenza in the mix. COVID has not gone away and is still this kind of steady baseline noise that's in there um, that that doesn't go away. Sometimes these viruses were co-occurring in a single person and making them super sick and sending them to the ICU. And so it was kind of easy to put our finger on it. But the, the thing is, we we work in such a backdrop of a an overcrowded and overtaxed and understaffed system that it doesn't mm-hmm. take that to make a shift feel pretty difficult to manage. And so what COVID really drew out and just has been ongoing is that um, we're short on staffing. And when we're short on staffing, we're short on beds. I mean, there are great days, you know, like I had a shift last night and and we all just kept on staring at each other. You know, you can't say certain words because- No, you can't say it. You can't say it out loud. It's like a kitchen. Yes, you cannot say it out loud. And we were kind of just bug-eyed trying not to say it. Um, and finally, one nurse said, is there a football game that's important tonight? And that was the only way that we could communicate about what was happening. And so, th- you know, there are these magical nights, but I'd say, um, you know, the 30,000 foot view is that um, a lot of inpatients are sitting in the emergency department, um, that we have difficulty always transferring patients in who clearly need to be at our specialty hospital. And the crowd yeah. and boarding situation has been really, really tough and hard to manage on top of other challenges in our system. Right. My partner had to wait almost a week in an ER to get to a specialist. And it was like, it was really scary for everyone else because until she saw that specialist in all of our heads, we're like, she's going to die. Oh my God. You know, but they wouldn't let her go home. But then as soon as she saw the specialist, they're just like, bing, bang, boom, <laughs> here's some pills. You're totally great. You know, and we're just like, oh my well, God. Well, that, that is actually, I mean, that is the classic <laughs> case. I, I mean, I had something very similar last night where I told a patient, I thought they were fine to go. However, I couldn't send them without a certain type of follow-up. I just couldn't. And so I, you know, I called the consulting service and I said, here is a stable patient who probably doesn't need to stay, but I need to make sure that they're seen within a week uh, or two. And they were basically like, 
that cannot happen. There's no way to make that happen. She's like, I just cannot promise you follow-up in anything sooner than months. So we kept that patient overnight so that everything could happen in the hospital. It's not just the hospitals, of course, that are overtaxed. Um, the reason we're yeah. overtaxed is because clinics are overtaxed. So. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a it's just a big chain. I remember there was a lot of worry about available beds earlier this winter, especially uh, for kids. Has that gotten better or is that still exacerbating your waiting room? I think that's kind of a fixed issue right now. Um, I mean, certainly the RSV surge and the pediatric state of emergency, that period was the absolute worst. And I mean, just on a scale that is hard to explain, but I think the volumes that they were seeing were something like three or four times um, their max volume ever in our emergency department, as long as we've been tracking on the pediatric wow. side. And so, I mean, you think we staff for this, you know, even in the worst of circumstances, there's just kind of a, a what we're ready for. And it was so above and beyond that in terms of everything, in terms of beds and staffing, space, flow, everything. So, Right. And how is your staff holding up? I mean, like how are ER nurses holding up? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I guess there's a silver lining to this, which is that so many of us have never appreciated our ER nurses as much as we appreciate them now. Oh, wow. And I would say when I look at some of the nurses that I get to work with, and last night in the ER was a prime example where I just, I looked up at the end of my shift and I was like, that just went so well because of you guys. You know, the nurses that remain that have been staff nurses for so long are so committed and experienced and still they're all vulnerable to burnout because of staffing shortages. And, you know, I think the other thing is, We've all filled this gap in nursing with traveling nurses, with relatively early career nurses who are kind of fresh out of school or early training, because it means that we constantly all don't know each other, you know? So those efficiencies that happen when you have a really stable staff that knows each other and has a ton of unspoken communication and shortcuts to things and common understanding and yeah, you know how they communicate. Yeah, like, you know their threshold yeah. for stress. You know, if they look worried that everyone in this room should be worried, that kind yeah. of thing. I have a lot of friends, oddly, that are nurses, and a lot of them do travel because um, it, it's so lucrative right now for them to do that. Yeah, like they're getting paid almost three times sometimes as much as they normally would. And they told me as well and um, that Oregon produces like the third fewest nurses per capita. Are you at all hearing if there's going to be like a long-term game plan for staffing for healthcare in Oregon? I mean, there's there's all kinds of talk. I mean, I think everybody understands that we need to make nursing jobs better, ultimately, and make them valued and make them or sustainable, sustainable yeah. and something that doesn't have so much moral stress on it mm -hmm. that um, that we can't attract people to the field because ultimately we need to train up and sustain this workforce um, and make it an attractive one. But some of the projections are, you know, that it'll take a decade or more to catch up with our oh nursing staffing shortages. And so some of those things where we're like, okay, we need to replenish the workforce. There's not a, a good short-term solution for this. And we're, we have what we have for now. I think the truth is we have to do things to improve the profession and also train things up and, and train people up in parallel. There's this bill before the Oregon legislature to set standards, basic standards for nursing staffing ratios. And, you know, just so that no nurse can, you know, safely take care of, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. like, um, I mean, the way it is, it's, you know, it's set by hospitals. Of course, everybody tries to be reasonable, but when you have a surge, 
And all you have for staffing is that this nurse who previously, you know, had three patients that they're responsible for, or five patients, and then all of a sudden it's like double. <laughs> it's like your job mm-hmm. today is the same, but twice as much. You felt busy the day before. Yeah. Does that make any sense? And if you don't feel safe practicing, then how can you stay in that role and how can you not burn out? And then what you mentioned is a tough cycle that we've gotten into when we fix our short-term staffing gaps with traveling nurses and per diems, and we keep on ratcheting up the rate. Um, first of all, uh, what is the incentive as a staff nurse to stay in a staff nurse position when it doesn't exactly. match that? Um, you know, ultimately people need to mm-hmm. follow the money to support their families and to make their their hours doable. And let's just pause there just to explain, like, if people aren't following, that means that someone from out of state is coming in and making three times sometimes as much as a staffing nurse who's been there for years and is, like, already, like, one TikTok away from quitting and going as a, and like, starting their baking company, <laughs> you know? Like, exactly. Because there's, I don't know if you've seen nurse TikTok, but no. it's just, like, uh, I mean, and it makes sense. It's a lot of uh, commiserating, um, <sighs> a lot of, like, dark humor about how their lives are not great right now. And so imagine then on top of that, someone's making three times as much as you are. And then you're just like, I can make this money, but I would have to leave. I would have to leave Oregon. I'd have to go to California. I can't, I wouldn't want to have that problem. It's figuring out how to fix that. So demoralizing. And it also hemorrhages money for the hospital and weakens the whole healthcare system Mm -hmm. and the money that they have to pour into the systems to do things like make, you know, make the staff positions better and improve working conditions and hire up more ancillary staff and address some of the other issues that we have that make the job so hard to begin with. And so it just like, again, it becomes circular um, because how do you solve Mm -hmm. a problem and also try to um, just like stay alive while you're doing it? All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about the new COVID variant. we're hearing about a new COVID (laughs) variant. Um, And I just want, it's nicknamed Kraken, which who and why and how, Esther, like where did Kraken come from, that name? You know, I keep on meaning to look this up. First, I was just like, what is Kraken? That sounds like a, you know, an ominous, you release it for one. Yeah. You release the Kraken. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Don't release yeah. it. It seems like there's an option to not release it, and that's what we should do. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, oops. I know. The name um, doesn't bode well, but, um, and, you know, if it's not Kraken, it's going to be something else. There'll be um, the, the thing about COVID that makes us feel like we're not quite at that steady state endemic. Like, we know what's going on with this virus thing is that we keep on seeing um, emergence of new variants that have some ominous properties. You know, for Kraken, it's that it looks like it has extremely high transmissibility, um, which again means, although we don't know yet how severe the disease from it will be because of the things that we talked about, um, simply being a high transmissible strain that will affect a lot of people and make them, you know, some range of ill is something that is concerning to us because we constantly feel like we're on the edge in the health system. I mean, even between surges, we're just playing catch up on all the things that got delayed from the last surge. Not to mention that, you know, long COVID doesn't require somebody to be severely ill in order to follow an acute COVID illness. So that also puts a a strain on the healthcare system that is a chronic one. So uh, I'm not looking forward to this one or future variants. You, you touched upon long COVID, and a lot of people aren't seeming to understand that we still need basic COVID protections. The pandemic isn't over. But it seems like 
people have given up on it. Like I went to the movie theater and I had my little mask and I looked around and a lot of people were just like, whatever. And I get it. It's fatigue. You're just tired. You want to live a normal life. And you're just like, if I get it, I get it. Like, let's move on. But how are you processing watching this when you go out in the world and you know what it means for your life, for your nurses' lives, for like your staff's life? Like, what are you feeling about that? Just in your body. Yeah, my body. <laughs> um, I mean, there's still for me is this disconnect because I come from the hospital and it's not just what it's like for us. I, I am constantly looking at patients. You know, we basically spend shifts apologizing. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you had to wait. I'm sorry it was so hard for you to get care. I'm sorry you are here on day, you know, seven of your COVID and I, I can't give you the therapeutic I would give you because it's been too long because you waited so long to be seen. And people are so frustrated with their downstream care you know, with needing to get care. And so you would think like logic would follow that people would thus be more invested in upstream things, like not even getting sick to begin with, you know, because like, if we just are like to hell with it, we're all going to get sick sometime. I'm just going to get sick. And you're like, we will just get the treatments, you know, we'll go seek the treatments. And then hopefully people are understanding through their own experiences that that downstream care that we are relying on, it's not working very well right now for a lot of people. They're just, it's overtaxed. The system isn't working. It was broken to begin with. That's a longer conversation. But I would think that that would kind of, that that would filter out to the general consciousness and people would just kind of have this sense, you know, it's better not to get sick in the first place for a whole host of reasons. One is that it feels terrible to get sick. I had COVID in November. Um, it was awful. And I lost my sense of taste for a month. In the middle of the holidays, oh, no. I had no sense of taste, which is really like, you know, 80% of my reason to live is my enjoyment of food around the holidays. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's sad. I know. It's just, yeah. it was the worst. I finally have taste back. But I guess, you know, there is that piece of me that feels really frustrated that we can't um, look at the problem in that way and and as in a society move a little bit more upstream, um, particularly in times like the winter, you know, the winter break that we just went through. But I also certainly understand fatigue. I understand wanting a break after three years. I, I don't know that people are really that bothered by the mask itself. I think it is more what mm -hmm. it represents. Um, and their feeling that they have to be on edge or worried or sad, or that we really have to mm -hmm. constantly comprehend the tragedy that has, you know, that has occurred to this nation. And um, I think if you're able-bodied and you're healthy, you think of that as like a permanent characteristic of yourself. You know, you, we don't even right. like to inhabit the world where we are vulnerable to not being in that state. And so I think the kind of the, the rationale for continuing to protect ourselves of it against COVID and other respiratory viruses um, just takes us to a place that psychologically is not comfortable. Right. For those who are adhering to safety precautions and are nervous about a new bump, uh, do you have any advice for them? No, I think it's it's more like solidarity. Um, I mean, I think my my husband and I are the the people who are at the gym with our masks on the entire time, and mm -hmm. I I do feel like there there was a time where you know you were kind of in one camp or the other, and then it sort of felt like it swung in a big way and not masking or taking other precautions is more the norm. And so I feel like when I do see people wearing a mask, there's like this, yeah, 
you know, <laughs> you do a little nod. <laughs> you do, do, a little do a little like eye contact, like you know. Just want everyone to, that she not only nodded, she like yeah. kind of winked it's, a little. It's a little so, wink. It's, yeah, it's saying so much more because I, I often feel like, why am I wearing this mask? So you know, I've been vaccinated and boosted, and I've had COVID, and you know, in some ways, I'm mm-hmm. I'm as immunologically peak as I could be. But yeah. I guess I always think about a friend of mine put out this statement. He's a department director and. Boston University, and he put out the statement to his whole faculty, and, and he said, there's always power dynamics here, and um, there's also people who don't want to reveal their health history to everybody at work or at school, mm-hmm. and among us, we know there are people who are medically vulnerable or who live with family members who are medically vulnerable, and let's just orient ourselves around those people and think about, without making them come forward and ask for accommodations, what if we all just had a, a community where the default is that we're protecting them. So they basically said, we're asking people, therefore, to mask up in departmental meetings and in classes. Um, And when framed like that, nobody had a problem with it. Mm -hmm. I try to keep that in mind um, and just think about who are you masking for? Why are you doing it? What is the good that can come of it? And I think it's, it's the most inclusive thing to do is to mask and just make people feel that there are others there that are mindful of their health and mindful of the health of those around them. And now for your microdose of news. Governor Kotek is hoping to fight Oregon's housing crisis with a goal to build 36,000 homes a year. Now that's an 80% increase from how much we're building today. The Oregonian looked at some of the challenges this plan might face, and that list includes higher costs in building, a shortage of skilled workers, and Congress's failure to improve affordable housing programs, making Kotek's housing goal seemingly hard to hit. And what makes Damian Lillard great? According to the New York Times, it's his loyalty to Portland. A profile, I think it's a lot more than that, but a new profile of Dame uh, takes a look at the endless questions about whether he will leave the Trailblazers and how his fierce loyalty makes him an outlier in the NBA. I mean, we already know this stuff, but it's nice to see him get the respect he deserves on a national level. If you'd like to catch up with even more local news, check out our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in our show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Just a reminder that we're now daily, so we'll be back tomorrow with even more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.